Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi there. I want to talk to you about ducks. No thanks. All right. Now that's a good idea. Okay, let's go. Give me that Oh, you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say like plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp. Out of the blue, no explanation, no point. Look at one. It's all part of the cosmic unconsciousness. Hello and welcome to the Cult Film Companion Podcast, the home of movies that are off, under, and ahead of the cinematic radar. My name is Chris, I am your host, and joining me today, I have a very special guest that I will introduce to you in just a couple seconds to talk about an absolute bonafide cult classic. <laughs> so we will get to that in um, just a matter of moments. But before we do, I just want to mention that, of uh, course, the Cult Film Companion is now available on every major podcast platform. We are also a member of the Blind Knowledge Collective, which is your one-shop one stop for all entertaining and informative podcasts and videocasts. Check us out at www.blindknowledge.com. Com. And of course, The Cold Film Companion is also a featured podcast on Newsly. Newsly is an audio app for iOS and Android. Download and use Newsly for free at www.newsly.me. Newsly will find the latest articles from topics that you choose and then read them to you in a natural human voice. For the first time in the history of the web, the entire internet becomes listenable. Stop scrolling and start listening. Follow topics as specific as you would like, from sports to science to Bitcoin to the Kardashians to movies, and use our promo code C-U-L-T-F-1-L-M, cult film, drop the I, pop in an M, and get a month free premium service from Newsly. So check them out today. And joining me from the Shonen Flop podcast is Dave. Thank you so much for joining me today. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Been looking forward to it. Um, it's been Big Trouble in Little China's movie. I've been uh, really been wanting to rewatch. Excellent. Yeah. So before we get into Big Trouble in Little China, just give my uh, audience a little background on you and your podcast, so people can check you guys out. Oh man, I love it. So, <clears throat> my apologies. So, I have a podcast called Shonen Flop, where what we do is we take a look at manga that ran in super popular magazine Shonen Jump. That's places where Dragon Ball Z, Naruto, One Piece all came from. But not every manga that ran in it can be a hit. So we have we what we do is we look at some series that just didn't really become successful and talk about what did they do right, what did they do wrong, ultimately did they deserve to be a flop or not. And we have read some very strange stuff. Not a lot of good stuff, but a lot of strange stuff, um, including stuff from the creators of My Hero Academia, Black Clover, and JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, where they just didn't quite have the right mix for success before they hit it big. 
And what is your latest episode on and what do you have coming up in the future so people oh, can sure. check you out? So our latest episode just came out today, actually, where we – it was episode number 50 where we took a look at a series called Hungry Marie, which was about a boy who somehow gets his soul merged with the daughter of Marie Antoinette in a failed attempt to revive her. And it's just – it's a very strange series and they swap bodies whenever she gets hungry um but yeah and then coming up after that we have gunblaze west where we just recorded our first uh half of the episode and that is actually by the creator of ronin kenshin which was a pretty famous anime back in the day and my god is it a piece of crap and uh <laughs> you can find that if that all sounds appealing though you can find us at shonen flop that's s-h-o-n-e-n-f-l-o-p.com we're also on spotify itunes youtube wherever else you get your podcast and you can find us also on twitter at shonen flopcast and i will have um dave's the shonen flop <laughs> podcast twitter handle uh will be tagged in this post when our episode goes live and uh i urge you all to follow him and check it out i mean i mean that's what uh, these shows are kind of all about you just kind of you get um insight into things that you didn't even know kind of existed and (laughs) speaking of flops uh initially big trouble in little china yeah it was a flop Mm -hmm. uh just a little background before we get into the uh, the the real meat here, the meat on the bone of uh, Big Trouble in Little China. This movie came out July 2nd, 1986, and it was produced on a budget of around $25 million, but only grossed about $11.1 million initially. This movie really found its audience in rentals and in home video sales. Mm-hmm. So the basis for Big Trouble in Little China was from a screenplay credited to Gary Goldman and David Z. Weinstein, although most of their initial script seems to have been... They kind of really just took the foundation and then built from it. The, yeah. The the basis of the, the original script, it was actually a Western uh, set in the mm. 1880s, and Jack Burton was a cowboy. And in Big Trouble in Little China, Jack Burton is a truck driver. He's got his truck, the Pork Chop Express. And uh, in the movie, his his truck is stolen. In the original script, it was a horse, and his horse was stolen. And when John Carpenter was brought on, he was actually, he turned down an opportunity to direct the, a movie that has similar kind of tone and themes, uh, the Eddie Murphy vehicle, The Golden Child, he turned down an opportunity to direct that, to direct this instead. And he brought on W.D. Richter, who was a uh, well-known script doctor and also directed the absolutely bonkers but brilliant cult classic Buckaroo Banzai. And he only gets an adapted by credit because if you want to really, I mean, if you want to dive into the politics of Hollywood and all the Writers Guild and the Directors Guild, I mean, there's plenty of stories and this is just one of them. I come across this a lot on my show. Uh, he gets an adapted by credit, and and John Carpenter was disappointed because he feels that he should he should have been given a, a screenwriting credit um, mm-hmm. to uh, to Mr. Richter. 
And what uh, Richter, of all places, he took Rosemary's baby as his template to modernize. He said, well, you know, Rosemary's baby, the original story, he was modernized for the movie. So that was his template, which is just an interesting kind of way of looking at it. But that was his basis for modernizing. Yeah. That's a normal movie I've got to rewatch. Yeah, well, yeah, that's a it's a brilliant movie. Um, it's one of those movies that um, you got to separate the art from the artist. I mean, because of the whole Roman Polanski thing. Oh, so I forgot he made that. Yeah, I mean, he's directed so many good movies, so it's kind of tough to be like, oh, mm-hmm. well. But you know, it's one of those cases if you can separate the art from the artist. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's definitely worth a, a, a watch. And were you going to say something? Uh, I was going to say also this movie is notable for it made John Carpenter want to stop making Hollywood productions. Yeah. Because of uh, failure. Well, it's very interesting to me. The plot of this movie, <laughs> I mean, there was controversies around this movie and this movie got a lot of initial hype. The audience test screenings were incredible. Yeah. The, the press junket went very, very well, and Kurt Russell said that he's never worked on a movie before or since where all the uh, people interviewing him said, well, well, how does it feel to be part of like the biggest, the, this movie's going to be the biggest hit of the year. He said he's, that's never happened before or since, and then this movie came out and it kind of bombed, and that's... yeah. Partly to, I mean, I I could see two big factors to why this movie uh, didn't do too well. Number one, the advertising budget was only $3 million, which, which, I mean, if you're going to, if you're a little indie movie, you know, that's, that's pretty good. Um, especially for 1986, but if you're a- attempting to be a big blockbuster movie that this movie mm-hmm. was aiming to be, that's not a lot of money. So that's the that's one factor because, I mean, it's very interesting because um, for this show, I've I listen to a lot of um, commentaries if they're available for the film that I'm reviewing, and I just actually just wrapped up watching Big Trouble in Little China with the commentary from John Carpenter and Kurt oh, Russell. Wow. And I've li- every every movie that John Carpenter and Kurt Russell do together, they do the commentaries together, and you get a lot of interesting stories, but you also get a lot of it's interesting. I mean, to me, I find them interesting, but to other people, I could see them being like, "Well, this isn't about the movie because they've worked together so many times." Before and after this movie, uh, The Thing, Escape from New York, Elvis, and Escape from L.A. I'm sure I'm missing some, but they work together so many times. Yeah. So they talk, and then they talk, they'll talk about the movie, <laughs> and then they talk like old friends. They start asking each other about how their kids are doing. Oh, and then that's they'll, so cute. And it is. To me, I find it very interesting. I could see other people being like, well, this isn't about the movie. And then they even reference it in this particular commentary. They're like, oh, yeah, we're doing it. <laughs> They're like, well, I'm sure a lot of people watching this now just turned off the commentary because we're not even talking <laughs> about the movie. So they even, like, they realize it. So if you're trying hey, to get yeah, a... As long as they're having a good time. I mean, that's the thing. Sometimes, I mean, commentaries are just 
very interesting beasts on their own. Uh, I, I've seen articles where people just like, I think there's something from the AV club that's called commentary tracks from the damned where they kind of, they listen to these commentary tracks and they kind of pull out these very interesting little weird things. Um, but I mean, there's some very, you can go and Google like bizarre commentary tracks and, I mean, one of the best things that I've ever heard, because it's not a particular, it's not a director that I particularly like, nor is it a movie I particularly like, is Ben Affleck's commentary for Armageddon, directed by Michael Bay, Mm -hmm. where he he talks about (laughs) how ridiculous the premise of the movie is. Like, he's basically ripping this movie. He's like riff riffing his own movie and he talks about asking Michael Bay about it um it's just I mean it's just one of those things but I mean Carpenter and and Russell they just I mean they they kind of crack me up so if you're looking for like all the technical stuff no but if you're just kind of like listening to two people just being just like buddies and long-term collaborators talking up their movie which I absolutely love this is a movie that mm-hmm. I mean I was only was I, I wasn't even five when this movie came out. So this was something that I found in, um, in the video store and, and renting it. Um, how did you first come across Big Trouble in Little China? Oh, God, I don't even know, to be honest, because I first watched this movie when I was probably in high school. So I probably just saw people talking about it on Reddit or something, and I was like, I should probably see it if people are talking about it. There was a period where I was watching a ton of these, like, 80s movies. Like, I watched, I think, over a weekend, They Live, um, Escape from L.A. in this all at once. I actually didn't see the thing until recently when it was movie night on my uh, Shonen Flops monthly movie night. So Mm -hmm. I was definitely overdue to watch that. Wow, yeah, definitely. So, yeah, this is... This was Carpenter had a, I mean, I'll just basically sum this movie. We have got Kurt Russell, who's um, a truck driver who ends up, I mean, he's portrayed as the lead character, but it's really, and he even says it himself, it's the, I'm trying to, what's the actor's name? Dennis Hun, I think that's, mm-hmm. he's really the star the star here he's really our lead and instead of having the instead of being like he's kurt russell is kind of his sidekick i mean jack burton would like is would like to think of himself as the hero would like to think of himself as the tough guy but he's on for the ride no he's a bumbling goof and yeah I guess that was kind of the it was kind of a hard sell for some actors because they're like, well, this is why this is not going to be my indie. I want this to be my Indiana Jones role. This is not that you're you're you need to be able to poke fun at yourself. And Kurt Russell talks about that. Uh, Kurt Russell actually turned down the role, uh, the lead role that I. And it now went to Christopher Lambert for the original Highlander movie. He was offered that, but he turned it down to work with with Carpenter for uh, Big Trouble in Little China. So we've got Jack Burton, who comes to uh, San Francisco's Chinatown, and 
he's got this buddy of his, and his buddy is supposed to get married to a Chinese girl with green eyes, which is an, yeah. an, ex- an extraordinary, rare trait for Chinese women. And mm-hmm. then they they basically, it's basically a rescue mission. We've got Kim Cattrall as, I guess, was supposed to be like the liaison for this woman um, to come mm-hmm. to America. And they end up fighting the what turns out to be this mythical kind of it's it's kind of like we've got gangs we see kind of we see gang warfare er, early in the movie we see like yeah. two rival chinese gangs fighting but then it turns very fan uh fantasy it basically becomes a, a, yeah. a high fantasy so i think that problem the problem that this movie had and i come across this so often and how I would how I qualify a cult movie because a lot of times people ask me, well, you know, what is a cult movie? And that that definition can vary so greatly. But I find certain things that are, are a common theme through cult movies. I see if I was in the marketing department for a film studio, a cult if a movie which has eventually gone on to become a cult favorite, is not a movie that is easy easy to market. Uh, it's not something that I would want to have to cut a trailer for or mm-hmm. come up with a poster for because a cult movie usually, and this, is, this movie is no exception, will jump genres and mm-hmm. it will blend genres and there are too many elements at play for me like if i had to cut a even a 2 minute trailer i mean that's that's difficult to do i mean bring me and i would be if i was the in charge of cutting trailers or marketing i say bring on any comic book movie that's those are pretty easy to market you show yeah. you show the hero you show the villain you show some one liners you, you know that kind of thing or a basic kind of straightforward action movie is much easier to market this movie is a martial arts movie it's uh, we've got elements of romance we have elements of fantasy there's so many things going on here and a, <laughs> Like, it's just a fun movie. And, I mean, it, it's one that it's easy to rewatch because you'll kind of pick up on things that you didn't even realize the first time around. But I think par- part of the problem with this movie is that I can imagine when you think, when you see the name John Carpenter, do you think goofy comedy martial arts movie no and i mean that's why he made it in the first place is he wanted to make a martial arts movie like i think this is the only carpenter movie i think that is the genre is actually comedy um see i was gonna bring up another movie uh, it's called memoirs of an invisible man Have uh, you seen? i haven't seen that okay so that is i would say the other carpenter movie that has a basis in it's basically like the Invisible Man, but The Invisible Man is played by Chevy Chase, and <laughs> that movie, it's it, it's interesting to watch. It's not something that I would want to talk about on this show because mm-hmm. 
the comedy doesn't land as well and i can i think chevy chase was kind of going through um a period of arrogance and hubris <laughs> that one isn't he though well yeah i was gonna be i was trying to be nice <laughs> oh you're a nicer guy than me <laughs> well feel free to i mean that's the thing i think that you know, chevy chase to me is very hit or miss and mm-hmm. he yeah it, it that movie tried to play it a little too straight where this movie kurt russell was not afraid like chevy chase i think was in this period where he didn't want to make fun of himself in that movie. He tried to play it yeah. a little too seriously. And the only thing that really sticks out in this in that movie to me, which is actually a pretty cool and impressive scene is the scenes where he's invisible and I I think forget what he's drinking, but he's he drinks something and you could see the liquid go down like it's you, through an invisible body like how oh, that's it, cool. Yeah. And like I said to me that's the most memorable scene of the movie. So <laughs> I, and if you ask me what the most memorable scene of Big Trouble in Little China is, I couldn't tell you because there are so many memorable scenes. And yeah, there, I wrote, I had four I wrote down as like moments that really stood out to me that I had a great time watching it. Awesome. So let's hit up, uh, we'll, let's, we'll check in with those periodically throughout the episode, but let's, let, let's, um, Let's hit hit me off with one of those right now. Sure. So uh, I guess we'll probably talk about them chronological order. So the first one was like the elevator scene where they it's the elevator starts flooding and they're surrounded by skeletons. Oh, brilliant! <laughs> just, but that scene didn't really make any sense. But I thought it was great. No, I mean, and that's the thing about this movie. It doesn't. I mean, logically, does any of this movie really make sense? It's not grounded. No. It's not grounded in reality, which which I like, and I think. I, I love that Carpenter actually got to make a, a, a big martial arts movie. I mean, that's something that he wanted to do, and he pulls it off in this movie. He wasn't joking around. The, the people that he hired to choreograph, to choreograph this movie and the stunts and the people that he hired to portray these, the, the you know, the people that actually do the martial arts are all act professional, you know, professionally trained people. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it shows in the action, and I know that he got a a lot of contra- there was a there was some well not a lot of controversy. I've covered some very controversial movies on on my show. This this one had some controversy, and I think it's completely unfounded. the The Asian community, the Chinese community, were upset because. I'm guessing this was before they saw the movie, and I've come across this often on the show. People will hear something and immediately get upset about it without having seen the final product yet. And I, I have a feeling this was the case. They heard that John Carpenter and Kurt Russell, what you know, those are the two big names attached to the movie. We're making a martial arts movie based in Chinatown, based on mythical Chinese creatures and villains and all this kind of stuff. And they, they got upset and the, you know, the part of the problem was they thought they were going to be making fun of Asian Americans or making fun of the Chinese and they couldn't be more wrong. Kurt Russell is the butt of every joke in this movie. The, yeah, the, and he's completely fine with that. Right. I mean, 
they treat the martial arts on display here are amazing. They did they mm-hmm. did some groundbreaking work. The stunts are incredible. <laughs> yeah, like that one with uh, where she has like the staff and it's over the bridge and she uses it to like rotators like do a flip using her staff horizontally instead of vertically. It's amazing. I thought that was really really a clever thing I had not seen in a movie before. Yeah. And they're not making fun. They're not making. This is not. They were afraid. Oh, this is going to be like the Fu Fu Manchu leaning into Asian stereotypes. And they're not. It's not. It doesn't. There's there's limits to the degree um, I can speak to as a white man. But I will say I did appreciate also that the series had like a really strong sense of Asian American community. Like if you notice, almost all the characters are Asian American and don't speak with accents, which I thought was an interesting choice. And there's actually very little um, Chinese that's spoken in the film. Like I, I honestly was keeping an eye on. I don't think there's really much spoken until like the forty minute mark. No, there's not, and they're not. Pre- they're not pretending to like do this in depth like deep dive into you know like the the asian cult they're not trying to um do this cultural appropriation thing like they're not trying to do that they're trying to put this is this movie is just meant to be entertaining and it's not making fun of anyone except for except for Kurt Russell and he's in yeah. on the joke so i mean so, like, I can imagine that, I mean, a great deal of, um, do you find it difficult is speaking as a, as a, as a white, as a white guy talking about manga at all? I mean, is that something? Uh, no, not no. particularly. I would, I mean, that's, I mean, I, I typically try not to, um, to try to, to, to give a point of view from anyone's point of view except for my, my own when I'm dealing with movies because I like to always bring on guests, whether it be women, non-binary, just people so they can offer different perspectives because, you know, as a white cis male, who wants mm-hmm. to hear, nobody wants to hear what, too much about what I have to say. So, like, it's always interesting to me when, I, I mean, covering manga... Um, I'm not all that familiar with it, but um, I do have a great appreciation for um, foreign filmmakers, and in particular, one of my personal favorite uh-huh. directors is uh, I'm sh- sure someone you're familiar with, uh, Takashi Miyake. Uh-huh. And um, actually, one one of the movies somewhere down the line that I want to cover, I think it's based on a manga. You can confirm this to me. So, um. Ichi the Killers is that based on a manga? If I'm not mistaken, I'm actually not sure. Oh, okay. Well, that might be something you might, you might want to it check. Might be. There, there are a lot. There, outside of manga, there is also a very strong literature culture. Like, um, I trying to remember some good examples, but yeah, let me see. Ichi the Killer. <laughs> it's yeah, you're right. It's based on a manga. Oh. I just wasn't familiar with it. Oh well. There you go. <laughs> <I told> you. <laughs> oh, yeah, The Ring. Sorry, The Ring is what I was thinking of, where it's a famous Japanese movie based on a book. No, uh, I think he actually did, though. Um, I do a lot of off-topic tangent conversations on my podcast, so this will be this will be one. Taka- I think Takashi Miyake directed the original. No, maybe not the original Ringu. I think he directed the original One Miss Call. Oh, interesting. So, um, yeah, but I mean. The cast for this movie is, uh, other than Kurt Russell, who's great at just playing the goof, um, mm-hmm. 
uh, Kim Cattrall is great in her role. I sometimes I find her to be very grating. Not so much in this movie. I, I she was okay for me, and, and she's mm-hmm. actually not an actress that I mostly this the Sex in the City nonsense. I just kind of tune out. So, um, what about uh, your second? Uh, give us a uh, number two on favorite <laughs> <Sure>. scenes. <laughs> the, the the wheelchair down the ramp scene with Kurt Russell, like you said, that's just Kurt Russell just being a complete clown in that scene. He almost <laughs> dies. And you see him just working his forearms to save his own life. But I thought that was just a really funny scene. And now I notice how he's trying to stop himself, but he realizes he can't actually stop himself or it ruins the scene. So you see him like pretending to try and grab things without actually doing so. Right. And then he ends up almost going down into a um, a pit at the end. And mm-hmm. I mean, that was, I mean, that, that shot to um to get the, the the shot of the wheelchair going down was uh in the pit was uh like a forced perspective i believe and um yeah i wanted to mention that this was the fifth and final collaboration with cinematographer dean cundy so he had worked uh, with carpenter great a great deal before this movie and this was their last collaboration together um but this movie i mean Again, I don't think John Carpenter gets enough credit for being such a versatile, just not director, but just a versatile, creative individual. Mm-hmm. The yeah, as in the case with a lot of his movies, the score is just great. I mean, but it's not just him. Actually, this movie is also credited to Alan Howarth and John Carpenter. Everything from like that that first down 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 from the beginning, like mm-hmm. that's all Carpenter. He's actually singing too. That's him singing. Really? And yeah. I had no idea. And it's funny. Well, neither did Kurt Russell. <laughs> that's something that I learned from the commentary. He's like, I didn't know you could sing that low. And he goes, John Carpenter, his his voice is is actually his t- speaking voice is not nearly as deep as that singing is. He's like, yeah, I can actually I can sing pretty deep. So, I mean, he's just, I mean, he brought us Halloween, um, but, mm-hmm. and he brought us the thing and, the, you know, he brought us Escape from New York, Escape from LA. He, he did a lot of work with him and Kurt Russell. So, I mean, mm-hmm. and I mean, to me, the whole tone for this movie is kind of set up in the first couple just like even the first couple minutes, you got him on the old pork chop express talking to, I don't know, pretty anyone that would listen to him. Um, and then he rides into Chinatown, and then all hell kind of breaks loose. And yeah, he's set up to be this hero, and he's not. He's like a lovable goofball that kind of succeeds despite himself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's just kind of how it is. Except for I would say The Thing is really where he didn't feel like that. Oh, no, 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 no. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, um, no. I mean, his, like, and that speaks to the the versatility of Kurt Russell. I mean, he actually did a pretty good job in Elvis, directed by John Carpenter, to to play Elvis. And speaking, there's actually a new new Elvis movie coming out soon. But, yeah, he's... um, and it's Snake Plissken, of course, is a real badass in Escape from New York and Escape from L.A. And hmm. uh, McCready is uh, 
like the the uh, take no bullshit kind of guy in the thing, but to see him do something like this, it's great to to see like his comedic chops. Uh, so it, I mean, it's funny they joke on the commentary that. John Carpenter says, this is my second favorite performance of you next next to Captain Ron. And if you ever seen, Captain Ron is actually kind of a cult classic. It's a guilty pleasure kind of comedy, a very goofy Kurt Russell. I have seen that, unfortunately. Yeah, it's worth, it's worth a watch just to see. Um, it, it's, it's, it's very funny to me because if you're familiar with Escape from New York and Escape from L.A., where Snake Plissken's got the eye patch, Captain Ron also has an eye patch. Um, yeah. But he keeps switching the eye patch from eye to eye, so it's kind of like a, it's like a goofy. It's like Captain Jack Sparrow before Johnny Depp and Pirates of the Caribbean. So, what about favorite scene number three for Big Trouble in Little China? <laughs> the we may be trapped scene when they're they're with the door and they're locked in. I just said it, so I guess kind of ironically. Yeah. Uh, great scene. I mean, this movie has so many great scenes. And it's also, I want to talk about how much this movie, for being a, a flop and eventually finding its audience and its cult status, which we'll, we'll talk about in a, in a bit, this movie is was hugely influential. And there's a couple things that I, I to me, re-watching this movie... And having played Mortal Kombat games, uh, are you, you? I'm guessing that you've played yes, Mortal Kombat. Uh, I, I have, yeah. Raiden <laughs> is straight up. Yes, a hundred percent. I mean, if you're familiar with Mortal Kombat and you've played Raiden with that hat and those like lightning <laughs> bolts, I, I mean, that's straight up big trouble in Little China. I feel it, Mortal Kombat must be one of the movies that you've covered if you haven't yet. No, actually, I haven't. I haven't. Um, tackled Mortal Kombat I probably should at some point I should have done it when the new Mortal Kombat came out which was kind of disappointing and actually made me appreciate the first Mortal Kombat movie for what it was but that's a story for another another day but I mean everything from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Rick and Morty every like people so many nods to this movie and that's kind of the sign of a good cult classic is when people t- uh, to this day are still giving nods to this movie and people still talk about this movie and people will recommend this movie. That's kind of how a cult movie, you know, a cult movie develops its cult status. It's it's almost kind of failed to, and I don't, I don't want to say that, you know, every cult movie is bombed at the box office, but it's almost, it's almost in, in, inevitable that something like this when you watch it, it's just like, okay, I, I I get why this is something. Because it's also unusual for a John Carpenter movie. Not that he hasn't done it. I don't think he's done it since. But no, Memoirs of the Invisible Man was also PG-13. But this is, you know, this is not an R-rated John Carpenter movie. Yeah, which is a rarity. It is. It's extraordinarily rare. I, I know Memoirs of Invisible Man is PG-13, and I want to say probably... Uh, Elvis was a made-for-TV movie, so that wasn't... 
But other than that, I mean, the majority of his movies, you know, are 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 a hard R. But this is something you could show, I you know, you could show to a, a little kid, and they're gonna get a like just the visuals alone, like they're gonna get a a, a kick out of this movie. It's so much fun. Um, and he, you know, what do you? So something that we should probably talk about. Uh, just cult movies in general, like, wh- to you personally, what do you consider a, a cult movie? And w- how do you think, like, people, for your loose definition of what constitutes a cult movie? I think a cult movie is a movie that you'll love it for its flaws. You oh, know? I love like, that. I love that. Yeah, like this movie, let's be real. This movie had a plot that didn't make a lot of sense. The acting is kind of stilted. You can tell, you can see the budget, and it's just absolutely ridiculous. But if this movie had high production values, if it had a really straight, like a really well-designed plot, this would be a cult movie. It would just be a good action movie, which, you know, there's lots of those, like John Wick, The Matrix. But that those aren't cult movies because people just love them for their good parts. This is a movie you love because of how ham-fisted the dialogue is, how nonsensical the plot is, and just how Kurt Russell is constantly winking at the camera the entire time. I That is a... I've asked many people on the show, and I absolutely love that definition. A movie that you can love because of its flaws. So I'm going <laughs> to... I might steal it, but I uh, I You're will welcome. give I will give so. you credit um, oh, well, for you. it because that, that is absolutely brilliant. And yes, uh, one of the things... That people, some well, special effects are not that great. Well, John Carpenter would agree with you on that point. And the special effects team that was was hired for this movie, he said that they they took on too many projects at once, and some of the the um, more mainstream movies with a with a higher budget were given more attention than something like Big Trouble in Little China. For instance, a little movie called Ghostbusters. <laughs> so, yeah, John Carpenter would agree with you. This movie was shot in 15 weeks, but only had four months of post-production. Wow. Which, at the for the time, and even so... So um, I would say, for now, like these modern periods, that doesn't happen with a big mainstream movie. Mm-mm. Freaking something like Avatar has like pro- years of post production sometimes. Yeah, some movies seem to be entirely post production. Like all these, um, dis- these these Disney remakes of their animated classics seem to be just just drenched in post-production with all the special effects and all the green screens. So you kind of have to give this movie, you know, I, you know, I didn't see this in the theaters in 86. So like, I remember as a kid, I got a kick out of the special effects. And as an adult, I still do because I'll take, to me, I'll take, even if the prosthetics are questionable, we'll say, I'll t- I'll take um, pr- conventional practical effects over shoddy, and I emphasis on shoddy CGI any day. And this movie does have some computer 
effects, obviously the the lightning bolts and whatnot. But this, <laughs> yeah, the trans the transparency effect. Yeah, and like when this this villain like inflates at the end of the movie, just becomes this big <laughs> yeah. balloon. I mean, yeah, it's kind of really goofy, but I mean that's kind of the charm of the movie. Because like you said, this movie is so outlandish. It's so over the top that it's not a movie that takes... It's not... It's taking elements very, very seriously. Like the martial arts elements are taken very seriously. Um, but the plot and particularly Kurt Russell are... Yes, they're perpetually winking at the camera and saying, you know, this is this is the kind of movie that this is. And if you can get on board with it, you're going to have a great ride. If you can't, you know, there's the door. There's plenty of other. If you're looking for a hardcore, really intense um, Kurt Russell, John Carpenter collaboration, there's plenty out there. Check out The Thing. Check out Escape from New York. But if you want something that's that's lighthearted and was, was very much a... a a passion project for John Carpenter to get to make a martial arts movie. There's a lot of fun in this movie to be had. Yeah, I totally agree. So what about favorite scene number four? All right. So my last favorite scene is, I don't know how to describe it. So I was calling it the video game scene. Okay. Where the, the, him, I forget the egg, I think made like the guy come out of his hand and he had to fight one of the three main bad guys. And I just thought that was just a very like interesting scene that likewise it was kind of creative especially at the time before like that was you, you know video games but it felt like they were literally playing a video game against each other especially with their hand movements oh right um yeah now it's such a yeah that's a crazy crazy scene so um so we got dennis dunn is pretty much the hero of this movie he's playing wang chi um and jack burton just kind of kurt russell's character just lovingly refers to him as Wang. He's our real hero. And, you know, even though Kurt Russell's front and center on the poster, I mean, our real hero here is, is Wang. He's, and we've got, um, let's see, we've got James Hong playing Lo Pan. We have Victor Wong playing Egg Shen. We have Margot played by Kate Burton. And then there's there's some very interesting... These names seem to have been just... Like, these are these names were just perfect for a video game. We've got Thunder, Rain, and Lightning um, as yeah. some of the villains here. But something I, I didn't know until watching with the commentary, and I'm, sure, I'm not sure if you are aware, aware of this or not, but mm-hmm. that... The opening scene with Victor Wong, yeah, was actually um, was kind of like a studio note. Um, because, really, yeah, I had no idea. That was kind of like we're not sure that the audience is gonna know exactly what, like, what's going on here. So that whole scene where this guy's sitting behind a desk and is like. Well, what we're trying to achieve here today is to get your version of the events that happened. Um, and then he does this weird 
thing with his fingers where lightning shoots <laughs> yeah, it was between. just very strange. I don't know if he ever used that ability in the entire movie. I don't think he did. Uh, <laughs> I I think it was just kind of be like, listen, I mean, I, you're some suit in this fancy office, but I just want you to know, in this world, magic does exist. So you're not going to take my word for it because I'm going to sound like a crazy person. So check this out. I can con- I can conjure lightning with my fingers. Yeah. And of course to me my 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 favorite role that he's ever done was as Gizmo's um care caregiver in Gremlins. Um you know. Mm-hmm. That's just one of my I just, you know, Gremlins is just one of my favorite movies so I, I got to get the nod to him, but he's great in this movie as is everybody and i know that the studio was very hesitant and i maybe this was part of the reason why some of the budget was cut down that john carpenter was very insistent about hiring the best performers for this movie despite the fact that some of them having little to no English speaking skills. The studio was kind of like, well, you know, you know, you should hire so and so, and he's like, no, this is the person I want to go with. Um, and you brought this up, so I, I, I'd like you to speak about this a little bit. Um, so this, this kind of ended John Carpenter's romance, so to speak, with big studio movies. Mm-hmm. Well, I just heard that he, when I was looking into the movie as well, it was just he, once it wasn't either a critical or a commercial success, he was like, all right, I'm kind of done making, trying to make these kind of movies, which really ended, you know, a very nice uh, 10 years starting with, I, I guess, Halloween and, you know, up to this point where he was really coming up with some really, I guess, cult movies, even though he actually didn't make a lot of critically or a lot of commercially successful films. No, he, I mean... You gotta, you gotta, we, we gotta kind of time travel back to either 78 or 79 when Halloween came out. That movie was made for basically no money and became this huge blockbuster. So, of course, the big studios are gonna start, you know, calling. And he even joked on, on the commentary, joking or not, I'm sure there's some truth to it. The, the reason that he was hired to do an, an Elvis TV movie was that they found out that he did the music to Halloween, and of course that Halloween theme is forever. Once you've you've seen the movie once, that theme will be embedded in your in your your mind there. So they were like, "Well, he did the music. He must know a lot about music. So let's hire him to do Elvis." <laughs> so, and yeah, I mean, like you said, he's never he was never a blockbuster director. I mean, the thing as well-liked now and as critically reappraisal has come in, I mean, that's kind of, like, seen as his magnum opus. That movie did not do well financially. So he was never a... He just wasn't... That's not, like, the cut of his jib, so to speak. That's not his forte. He's not a blockbuster director. And I think something, like, as weird as Big Trouble in Little China, which, first of all, if you just hear, like, say you know nothing about John Carpenter, you know nothing about Kurt Russell, and you just hear that title, 
that's kind of a weird thing and you're not going to you kind of expect big trouble in little china okay i'm guessing martial arts maybe it's a cop drama it, you know so it's it's a it's it's almost dest like a title like that is almost destined to become a cult movie so it's not a straightforward kind of thing and then this movie was going up against aliens which was huge and and yeah at the time so i mean th- this movie was already fighting an uphill battle and the mark <laughs> the marketing department kind of again this is not something i would want to market um there's too many there's too many different uh balls being juggled so to speak so many different genres being yeah. juggled here that it's not easy to say well is it a comedy yes is it an action movie Yes. Is it a martial arts movie? Yes. Is it a fantasy? Yes. Mm-hmm. So then it's like, okay. And then so when this comes out on home video, I, I talk to my co-host about it sometimes. We're like, so say this comes in, you're, you're working at a video store, and you're the one that has to slap that little sticker on it for either comedy or action what little sticker do you put on Big Trouble in Little China? You know, probably put action on. To <laughs> yeah. Be honest. Say, I was just about to ask what what. Yeah, I mean, if you had to pick one one genre, yeah, I would say action, definitely. But you could just as easily like it's almost like you should take half of them and slap comedy on it, and put half in the <laughs> comedy section and half in the action section. Yeah. And I, I, my co-host was mentioning he was fortunate enough to work at a video store that had a cult movie section, which is kind of great because a lot of these movies kind of fall through the cracks or they could fit so many different genres. But, I mean, that's kind of perfect for my show in general just because I get to bring awareness back to these movies. Who Like, what... If you had to recommend this movie to people, like how would you what what kind of picture would you paint? Uh, let me see. I think I would really paint a movie saying, "Do you want to see just kind of the peak of cheesy 80s action movies that knows not to take itself too seriously?" Then check out Big Trouble in Little China. I love it. Yes. It's yes. Your your action your it will f- it will definitely fulfill that action quota for you, but it also gives you just, I mean, it gives you cheesy one-liners. It gives you goofy Kurt Russell. I kind of, I like that scene where he's being, like, he's dressed up to go, I don't know, kind of an adult material, but he goes to a brothel, (laughs) pretty much, or bordello, and he's got that, that very, um very 80s like plaid checkered suit on and he's got those glasses and he's pretending to be like a a, a stuffy businessman i mean <laughs> yeah it be it, it's just so much there's there's so much to talk about there's just so many different little things that that i love about this movie um anything that you would is there anything that you could actually compare this movie to any other movies come to mind that you were just like well, oh I, f- I mean they live Right. Has the same life blood blood in it. Yes. Um and um oh sorry, yeah. 
I was going to say that would that was uh, my next my next question is if you had to match up uh, you can always choose they live but if you were coming up with a uh, like a double feature n- movie night for like friends and stuff what would you match Big Trouble in Little China with Yeah I think they live it would be absolutely I think that's just a really perfect double feature Absolutely no I couldn't agree with you more uh, and uh, that's that's one that eventually we'll cover on this show um if Rowdy Roddy Piper, R.I.P., uh, his best performance to date. And, mm-hmm. yeah, th- th- those two, yeah, they match perfectly um, because there is a lot of a lot of parody, a lot of satire um, in They Live that would, yeah, mm-hmm. it would match up perfectly. <laughs> yeah. And then that, yeah, because you got your goofy, your goofy comedy with Big Trouble in Little China, then you get some more of the, uh, the heady, um, consumer satire and political satire in They Live. So the, that would make for an excellent double feature. Any <laughs> other... Um, how does this rank as far as uh, John Carpenter movies in general go for you? I would say that... I think my favorite is probably The Thing. Okay. And then I just haven't seen Escape from L.A. or They Live recently enough, so I, I'll put this as number two just because I haven't seen any of his other movies in a decade. Right. No, that's fair. Um, I would actually say that <laughs> it's as kind of serious as Escape from New York is, Escape from L.A. is very cheeky and much more akin to Big Trouble in Little China and mm. they live in its its kind of um, goofy nature but I mean they're both they're both fun I, I just I mean a, apart from escape from I mean apart from Big Trouble in Little China a, a great double feature sometime I would recommend to you and to anyone listening mm-hmm. is to do Escape from New York and Escape from LA um mm-hmm. Uh, Escape from L.A. gets a lot more hate than I think that it deserves. This, I, I John Carpenter is one of my my favorite directors. I I think that he's just a, he just makes very entertaining movies. Um, this one I'm not even sure how I would rank it because I like so many of his movies. Um, but I I could easily talk about the movies of his. It's much more easier for me to say what movies of his I don't particularly like, which <laughs> I wouldn't recommend. Yeah. I wouldn't recommend The Ward or Village of the Damned. Um, mm. Neither of those. I th- uh, The Ward is his last feature that he ever directed, and was people were saying that it was a return to form for him as far as like a straight horror movie goes. I didn't particularly like it. And village of the damned to me just stinks of being a paycheck movie. Yeah. Not not really something that he had his heart in. Uh, And to me seeing something like big trouble in little China or the thing or escape from New York, or they live, you can, or in the mouth of madness, which is crim- criminally underrated as a movie, you can see 
how much love and passion is there in the movie. And something that another thing that I learned from the commentary is they had a blast making Big Trouble in Little China. The cast all got along. The crew all got along. Mm-hmm. Everyone, and it shows on screen how much fun they were having behind. I mean, it shows in the movie how much fun they were having because yeah, there's a lot. There's there there are quirky one-liners. There's a lot of physical humor in this movie, like especially Kurt Russell. There's this scene where he he knocks. It's they're in this temple and there's all these statues and he bumps into one. And then they all fall down like dominoes. Um. The thing in the wheel, the wheelchair scene. <laughs> I mean, it's all like goofy physical humor, and yeah, y- you know, yeah. To make a movie like this work, like the actor has to be willing to make fun of himself, and I I can't stress that enough. How much fun Kurt Russell had, and how he was in on the joke, so he was willing to play it very broad in this movie. And compared to the other comedy, in air quotes, from John Carpenter, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Chevy Chase wasn't. I mean, I don't know what... And I know that, um, from what I've heard, Carpenter and and Chevy didn't get along behind the scenes, which doesn't surprise Mm me. Yeah, Uh, no one gets along with Chevy. No, um... a Chevy gets along with Chevy, I would say. <laughs> um, so, I mean, so that movie kind of falters because if if he was willing to lean in more to the humor, humorous aspect, because they were on two different pages, Carpenter wanted to try to, to, to kind of um, do another comedic kind of thing, as he had done with Big Trouble in Little China, and Chevy Chase was all about doing it more serious. So they were, they were, you know, we've got two cars headed in different directions. You know, we're not, they weren't on the same page, let alone the same book. Kurt, you know, Kurt Russell, he probably wouldn't, and I'm just speculating here, but I don't know if he would have been willing to kind of make an ass out of himself as much if he didn't already have this established relationship with Carpenter. I think, I think that he trusted that he trusted John enough to be like, okay, I get what this movie's all about. I'm going to give you the performance that you need. So I think that's what kind of works with this movie is that you can see that, you know, it's fun. It's just, they were having fun behind the scenes and it shows in the final product. So, I mean. Yeah, I totally agree. Ever, You could not have had. It's impossible not to have had a ton of fun while making this movie. Yeah. Um, and I'm just glad that this movie. I mean, and this is what I come across a lot of my show is that. Cult movies will eventually find their audience, whether it be at midnight screenings or word of mouth, whether it be friends recommending it to friends, strangers on the internet recommending it to each other, or you go into the video store, and if it's like a, a you know a local mom and pop video store back when those existed, 
if the guy behind the counter kind of knew your your tastes and movies, you know, after a while he would, you know, he would recommend to you. So that, that's this is like the kind of movie because it's it's tough to me. It's like when I first think of a what's a good 80s action movie that I maybe haven't seen, this movie wouldn't immediately spring to mind, nor nor would it spring to mind if someone said, well, what's a good 80s comedy that would spring to mind? I'd be like, oh, you know, that's a good question. But if somebody, you know, someone asked me, like, I'm just getting into John Carpenter, and I've seen Halloween, and I've seen The Thing, and I've seen this, I was like, well... You want to see something interesting, <laughs> and I, you know, I would say interesting is a very um, apt adjective to describe this yeah. movie. Check out Big Trouble in Little China. <laughs> That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So, any final thoughts on Big Trouble in Little China? No, I just, um, it's, it's a movie that has a ton of flaws. Like, you can tell that they didn't have the budget to shoot anything except all in a building. The female characters don't really have much of a purpose, and... It sounds like every line of dialogue was recorded by the one person in one take, and then they edited them together. But, <laughs> you know, wouldn't have it any other way if you really want this to be a yeah. great, terrible movie. I mean, I and I think you, I again, I'm, I'm probably going to steal this, but I will credit you. Uh, you. This is a movie that you love because of its flaws. Because, yes. you, you, like you said, you wouldn't have it any other way. Um there have been talks of either a sequel being done to this movie. At, mm-hmm. There have been talks of a remake. I, kind of, I feel a TV show might be interesting. You know, that would... I mean, now with the quality of um, some of these original series, now that, you know, with streaming sites, mm-hmm. I would like to see... I mean, there are so many different things that you could explore in mm-hmm. in this and exactly i think it would be interesting we, we've still got john carpenter we still have kurt russell it's funny because um john it, it because this is the kind of thing that they talk about because they're they're their buddies on the commentary is they talk about john actually asks him he's like well do you think you're they joke about each other's age ages a lot they you know they poke fun mm-hmm. about it and he says well do you think you're too old to do action movies and kurt russell well absolutely uh, he goes, the last the last uh real action movie that that he he did was um a movie called soldier which is underrated um that's another mm-hmm. cult classic and he said you know because he goes well you know i'm getting i'm getting up there in age and he talks about the injuries that he sustained on Soldier. He he broke his ankle. He broke part of his foot, and he just said, "You know, I." And he he had an interesting point. He goes, "I I love action movies, but you know, you sometimes got to say, you know, would a younger I you know I kind of buy it more with a younger person. I, but I mean, to oppose his point, I would say that." Look at someone like Liam Neeson, who kind of had a career resurgence after Taken, yeah. doing these like, okay, I mean, with, if done properly, it can be done. Um, mm-hmm. Hell, we've got Michael Keaton coming back as Batman. <laughs> yeah, right. So, I mean, if done right, 
I, I would like to see the continuation of a Big Trouble in Little China series. I was thinking more of a sequel, but I think you hit the nail on the head. I think like a, a an eight or ten part series. I mean, there's uh, you have got endless avenues to explore in this movie. What happened afterwards? Because do you remember the very the last scene of this movie? Yeah. The, oh man, I know it would be great. There's a there's a creature crawling in the back of the truck. Oh no. To, you know, if it was made nowadays, it would have been the post-credit sequence. Yeah. Um, and I, I'm sure, I, I, I can't confirm it or not, I'm sure that was a bit of sequel baiting that they were doing. Uh, and I, you know, but typical of Hollywood, if a movie mm, doesn't perform at the box office, you know, right. no no sequel for you. No, 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 no mm. more, no, no more. Martial arts movies for you, Mr. Carpenter. Back to horror. Uh, so I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I would love to see a series continue with these characters. I'd like to see an old Jack Burton kind of come out of retirement. Similar to the way that they did with... Um, are you an Evil Dead fan? I am, yes. Groovy. Right. How they brought Ash back for Ash versus the Evil Dead. And mm-hmm. he's... Will, you know, he's... <laughs> He's willing to poke fun at himself and just saying, like, this is an older Ash dealing with the, the stuff that a younger Ash couldn't deal with. So, you know, I say screw. I don't I don't want to see a remake of this movie. I, I don't want a sequel unless Carpenter and and Kurt Russell are involved. And I would love mm-hmm. to see a series that explores this or at least have people involved that actually have a, a love and respect for for this movie yeah. for it to and you continue. know a movie that's out that has one of the act, same actors in it is everything everywhere all at once i haven't seen that yet but i've heard nothing oh, i think you'll love that movie i've heard nothing but incredible things about that that is on my it's, to watch list yeah uh james hong is in it is yeah, it? he's 93 years old no are you wow that's awesome well, he's, been, he's one of those people that's been old forever right <laughs> you have some of those people that you kind of I mean, it's interesting. Some of the people that they considered for for Big Trouble in Little China were Clint Eastwood and Jack Nicholson were suggestions from the studio. Interesting. Uh, an interesting <laughs> anecdote, not related to Big Trouble in Little China, but the studio wanted Charles Bronson to play Snake Plissken in Escape from New York. Ah oh, no, man! You gotta have Kurt Russell's perfect, right? I, I I love Charles Bronson. I I covered uh, Death Wish three, which to me that is the epitome of an over the top eighties action movie that has. I agree. Has absolutely no. Well, it's got some shame on the part of Charles Bronson. The, the, the Canon Films had no shame in putting out an absolutely over the top basically turning Charles Bronson into Rambo. Um, but if you want to hear me and my guests talk all about Death Wish 3, that's in the archives. But, <laughs> Dave, thank you so much for joining me. Um, one last time, tell us where we can find your show. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I had an absolute blast being on. You can find us, or sorry, you can find recording with my co-host. You can find me at Shonen Flop, where me, my co-host, and a guest, we take a look at some of the weirder manga that are out there, reading a lot of you know cult stuff. Um, if you will, we've. 
definitely read some very interesting stuff. And you can find us at Shonen Flop at shonenflop.com. That's S-H-O-N-E-N-F-L-O-P.com or Shonen Flop Cast. Uh, we new episodes out every Monday, 6 p.m. Eastern time. Um, but yeah. Great. And all that information will be in the episode description. Wonderful. So please check out the Shonen Flop podcast and please continue turning into the Cult Film Companion podcast. Dave, we'd love to have you on again at some point. Maybe, oh, yes. Maybe I, I'd be very interested to have a conversation with you about Ichi the Killer, but we can talk about that in the future. <laughs> um, but thank Sounds you. Good to me. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to all my listeners. I love you. Take care. Aww. Good night. Well, I'm a sweet. Good I'm, night. I'm, I'm like a teddy bear, I guess, at times. Yep. <laughs> oh, yeah. And uh, Chris, if you ever want to join us, we do have a monthly movie night where um, I don't run it anymore, but we have someone, and she definitely has a great eye. We just did the Blues Brothers. Ooh. Uh, this, yeah, so that was it. Before that, we've done The Raid. We've done Dread 3D. Uh, we did The Thing. Uh, so, oh, um, Tucker and Dale versus Evil. So definitely we have a very cult theme to the movies we pick. No, you absolutely do. You just named off some incredible movies that I have nothing but love for, especially The Raid. <laughs> for those, another, just an off-topic tangent that I do so often on my show, <laughs> check out The Raid and The Raid 2 as... And Dread, which is essentially The Raid made by Americans. I am so glad... That somebody else shares my opinion on that. I think a great double feature is either The Raid and The Raid 2 because they're both badass action movies. But if you want to see a very similar premise, it, it, I completely agree with you. Dread or Dread 3D, which is criminally underrated and deserves a sequel, make yeah. it happen. Uh, check out The Raid and check out Dread for I mean you kind of got the best of both worlds in for sure. a hero trapped in a building scenario. That's all I'm going to say. But check out yeah, check out all those good movies and I would love to be a part of uh your your movie night. Uh be flattered. Uh here, do you want me to post just a link here? Or should I DM you it? Uh, just DM me it. I'm going okay, to uh good. just wrap up this wrap up this episode. Stop recording, and then uh, <laughs> sounds good. I sent you. We we could talk a bit more afterwards. But um, thanks again for everyone tuning in. If you're still listening to this, thank you for uh for all this bearing through all the small talk. Tune in again. Dropping at least one episode a week. Available on all major podcast platforms. Good night. Good night.